And all these like bells and whistles and shit just to remind me to like breathe or whatever on my phone. It's not to remind me to breathe. It's to remind me to like lock the cars. So it's so much shit. It's like, and then, and then the important things I like totally whiff on and I'm like, oh, whoops. We <laughs> put the cars locked. I did it at 8.15 last night, you know. Oh. Maybe instead of having a car lock alarm, you should just have a breathe alarm. But you wouldn't be able to listen to it, right? You, It would go off and you would close your eyes and start to draw in the splendor. And <laughs> then one of your fucking kids would be like, Ah, Dad, I'm going to hit you with a sword. Yeah, that's probably... It's either that or I'd have already passed out already from not breathing. So how could I hear the alarm? You know the beds down here? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Luis is just like crawling underneath them like Snoopy in um, that one holiday special, Peanuts, whatever, you know? Remember when he's like ducking down underneath the uh, the grass and like his legs are low and his like belly's on the ground? He's got the war, like the military helmet on. Anyway, that's what she's doing underneath those beds. It is hilarious. Well, Lu- Luisa, is that your wife? Who, who, who's Luisa? Shit, that's right. Who's the Luis? listeners don't know what the fuck you're talking about. This is my dog. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm, I'm like, mm, just, you know, my turtle. You, If you need to relax, you should be visiting pristine, frozen northern Minnesota tonight. The moon is new, and every star in the universe is out, and you can see the Milky Way. and It's just freezing cold and beautiful. Somewhere, wherever Richard Dawkins is, he's getting a hard-on right now. Are you listening, Richard? <laughs> the stars are out in the sky. Yeah. Are you listening, Dick? Not you, Dick. The other Dick. Uh, explicit. So, <laughs> I, I, I can do this whole thing. I am, I'm Ryan. I'm sorry, I don't have anything tonight for you, Harland. And I'm Harland. And this is the Dawdler's Philosophy Podcast. Tender Vittles. I did prepare that one. I think what is that? I don't even get it. You didn't know Tender Vittles that look like it was like a cat food? I don't do cats. What the hell are you talking about now? Tender Vittles is like a cat food. Anyway, Wittgenstein. Good old Tender Vittles. I prepared it. <laughs> Everybody's exhausted. Apparently. We're, we're tired. We're having a nice Eeyore night with Vitty. My cousin Vitty, 
Yeah, we're going to talk about Wittgenstein, but not just like Wittgenstein, the life of times, right? I mean, this is not that. This is something super specific. You are not just, because if you were to try and do something like that, you'd need more than the amount of time that we've allotted for ourselves tonight, right? We have no station master. We can go as long as we want till Ryan literally falls asleep <laughs> on air. But no, we're not going to go. I mean, I can run through a few details just so it's on the record about his life in case some of our 8.1 listeners are interested. <laughs> oh, God. But, uh, Keeps going up. <laughs> primarily, we're going to talk about one of his posthumously published notebooks entitled On Certainty. But yeah, Wittgenstein, uh, I'm probably going to be saying this in multiple pronunciations tonight, so deal. <laughs> Only published one thing while he was alive, the young Wittgenstein version of the Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus, when he was uh, hanging out with Moran Russell at Cambridge and fighting in the trenches. Yeah. But almost everything of Wittgenstein's that we have nowadays was published after... He was gone. He born in 1889, died in 1951, I think, of prostate cancer. And the big whoop works that we have from him, Philosophical Investigations, the Blue and Brown Books, Uncertainty, and others, all of this was just collections of notebooks published posthumously. He was, you may be glad to hear, in this sense at least... Not much of a hustler. <laughs> he wasn't doing things the right way. Well, yeah, right. He wasn't doing things the right way, but at the same time, it's not like he had inauspicious beginnings or anything either. So it's it's a mixed bag a little bit, right? That's the leg up he has on the two of us. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Though he wasn't a great hustler, he, he won the birth lottery and was basically born into the Rockefeller family or something. Uh, one of these rare earth metals millionaires doing iron and steel and whatnot. Mm. So they had everything they could ever want, but then the problems that come along with that, apparently overbearing father that's like, you're going to go into business. And he's got all these fucking kids that are like, I'm going to be an artist. <laughs> Screw you, dad. And then they get sad and a couple of his siblings killed themselves. Ludwig was the youngest of eight, I guess. And then he was like... No, I'm not interested in business, but I'm not necessarily good at art. I'm going to go be a philosopher, philophiler. But he even didn't know that right away. He was maybe going to go into aeronautics or something. Yeah, it was like engineering. It was very physics-y, I think. Yeah, from physics-y, but then he, having this general orientation to drill down all the time, went kind of <laughs> through physics to math, through math to logic, through logic to whatever the hell he ended up doing. Right. Reaching the bedrock where his spade is turned, as they say. <laughs> so I guess his early life was just kind of odd. And he ended up doing all kinds of weird things. One, The story that I really like is when he moved to Norway and built himself a cabin on some rocky outcrop overlooking the fjords so he could sit down and think. Yeah. Sounded kind of interesting guy. Yeah, he's definitely a wanderer. I mean, and it, not just in the actual, like, geographic sense, but a wanderer in many senses, right? So, obviously, he did the whole drill-down thing from aeronautics to 
his own little bedrock. And, you know, but he also, didn't he enlist in World War One? Or am I wrong? About As I understand it, yeah, he chose to do that. Yeah, so, the, I mean, it's like, okay. <laughs> so this person is just kind of all over the map in terms of, I mean, they're just difficult to figure out. And maybe it is just a result of being the youngest of eight in a wealthy family, kind of just trying a lot of things out, but maybe just sort of the core who this person is, is definitely a philosopher. It's at least what he is remembered for, you know, the work anyway. So much so that they published, you know, posthumously, if I said that correctly, you know, a number of his notebooks, which is hilarious. I don't even know. What was the state of his notebooks? Were they... A mess? Did he, or was he like one of those people who just always put the dates and the, and so people could keep track and put it all together later? Or? Episode fourteen, when we did Nietzsche's Will to Power notebooks, I think were much more scattered and over a longer period of years, etc. These were, I think, more clear and laid out, and he even had handed certain segments of it off to some of his intellectual brethren at the time. Okay. I think this stuff was all written around 1949 to 51 when he was staying with Norman Malcolm, uh, another philosopher with whom he was acquainted. And they, and I guess this Malcolm guy is part of what got him interested in these particular articles from Moore, who, of course, he knew as one of his professors and then thesis advisors. The little tidbit about more that I wanted to make sure to put on here is the one thing that I've heard so far that endears this old dogmatist to me is that he apparently, I'm told, didn't care much for the PhD as an institution, as a process, as a thing. So when Wittgenstein submitted the Tractatus to him and Russell, his commentary on it was something like, This is a work of genius, and otherwise satisfies the requirements of a PhD. (laughs) And I was like, that's kind of funny. These clever old Brits. Yeah, that's funny. I don't know, was he even British? But whatever. So, yeah, I think these were just written at that point and kind of handed to people, and they were kind of first draft style. Mm -hmm. He knew what he was working on. Um, So the big famous thing about Wittgenstein that everybody's going to mention whenever they talk about him is that he was special and unique in in the canon, at least. The people who have made it into the story of philosophy in the West is that he is the one who invented, almost inspired, heavily influenced two different schools of thought that the latter contradicted the former to a large extent. Mm. And that's something that not very many people have pulled off. So Mm. in the early days, when he's deciding, I'm going to figure out the foundations of logic and go, you know, dig as deep as one can. And I'm going to go follow Russell around like a little terrier until he listens to me. And I'm going to work on the problems he's working on because he's the smartest man in the world and I'm going to learn and follow and solve what he can't solve. And then when he's doing this Tractatus, he's, it's all laid out in these very precise propositions 
and numbered and subnumbered, you know, three dot four dot two dot whatever, and it's mm-hmm. supposed to all be building up one long, large, explicit argument that arrives in the end at the famous whereof we cannot speak, thereof we must remain silent, basically figuring out what the limits of language are. But that's kind of, that project lasted his entire life and covers both phases, this obsession with language, what is it, how is it possible, how does it work, where does meaning come from, all of these sorts of problems. And so the Tractatus style basically evolved into this logical atomism, logical positivism stuff about, you know, everything that's meaningful that can be said is, can be broken down into these basic constituents, which are names, and meaning comes from reference or denotation, and propositions are grammatical arrangements of these atomistic names for things, and the relationship between language and world is one of picturing. But whatever Wittgensteinian picturing is, is quite contentious and hard to figure out, despite his attempt at being very clear about things. (laughs) But by the second phase, that we mostly know through the notebooks published under the title Philosophical Investigations, he has abandoned and even is quite harsh and ridiculing of his earlier attempts to solve these problems and is saying that, no, it's not about reference, it's about use. And the way that language gets meaning is simply through the forms of life, through the way that linguistic communities employ noises. And that it's kind of this vague rule-following, family-resemblance, game-analogy system. And he thinks that the project that he spent seven years on writing this Tractatus is all a big mistake. Okay, so, and the Tractatus, well, first of all, when you said, like, a little puppy-falling Russell, you meant Bertrand Russell, right, the famous philophiler from Oxford? Cambridge. Cambridge. And then Tractatus, it influenced uh, logical positivism? Yep. Okay. And that was a Popper thing, right? Mm, I think Popper was was tangentially related, but it was the, you know, Vienna Circle. Uh, Morris Schlick, I think, is maybe one of the more central names. Popper hung out with them some of the time. Okay. But he was, yeah, okay, so he was kind of in and out, but not all the way in. And then he comes up with this more, I almost want to say from having not really read much of it, it sounds almost sort of like a more like sociological, anthropological kind of approach to language. Is that, would that be correct or does that need to be fixed? I don't know if he looked at it that way or would say it that way, but when you say it, that seems fine to me, that it was much more emphasizing I mean, I think that's kind of anthropological to look at use. What are these apes doing and how do their behaviors correlate with their noises? Yeah, because, I mean, it just seems like the other one goes in this drill down to find the essence or, you know, the roots or whatever. And then then there's this more 
almost Kuhnian relativism sort of let things hang together and it's just a matter of almost you could say like mimetics or whatever like there's a sort of there's the exchange of information and maybe in some contexts there's an aesthetic you know uh, pleasure out of using some words over others or you know phrases etc and then you get this sort of uh use and disuse of of things and it's almost almost darwinian in a way too but mm-hmm. so that that is more loosey-goosey compared to something that would be more rigorous or what have you in its sort of logical you know mathematical kind of approach i think that would to, be a fair characterization to call the latter wittgenstein loosier goosier than the young <laughs> well that's you know Tender Vittles, Tender Tidbits. They're loosey-goosey. That's the title of this one, by the way. I, my strongest connotation memory with that phrase is that one of my elementary physical education teachers would always use that <laughs> word when people were, you know, trying to participate in sports, but they're just weak little kids with soft bones or whatever, and he wanted them to, you know... Harden up, tighten up. Don't ah, quit being so loosey-goosey <laughs> out there, Grant. <laughs> Growing around too much. Quit screwing around. <laughs> I'm sorry, but the letter is like the suicide note. It's like, P.S. Quit screwing around. <laughs> the reason we're anyway. talking about this, yes, though we're supposed to be talking about uncertainty, is that my spin on what Wittgenstein is doing in the uncertainty is heavily motivated by and invested in his philosophy of language, part two, from this Philosophical Investigations latter Wittgenstein style. So we'll Hmm. get to that when we get there. But before we get there, we have to go through two other papers. I'm throwing it all at you tonight. Because uncertainty is quite directly a in response to and based on thoughts stimulated by two papers, as I mentioned from one of his teachers, G.E. Moore, entitled A Defense of Common Sense and Proof of an external world. Mm. Oh yeah. So and those We're in it now. of course both activate my chimp because as people may know if they've listened to episodes four, six, eight, ten, what like anyone that I'm kind of <laughs> leading, I'm very much a skeptic and uh and kind of nihilist type and I I'm not a big fan of things like external worlds or common sense. But I am a fan of Wittgenstein. So then I'm like, all right, well, what? why is he interested in this? Maybe I can find a way to see what he's seeing in here that is interesting. And I think that I succeeded in doing that and then figuring out what Wittgenstein's problem is and why he's not joining us skeptics, at least on the surface. Wittgenstein or more? Wittgenstein. More is the lost cause. Like, he's, there's no, I mean, <laughs> you, he's so far away from me. But, but you're saying Wittgenstein 
wasn't joining you skeptics. Right. Is that correct? Ooh. I think it is. Nice. All right. Okay. So, more. Philosophers at a certain time, I don't know if it's so much popular right now, but they were often very concerned, perhaps unduly, with attempting to refute what they consider to be crazy ideas or ideas that they don't like. A lot of people have attempted to refute Bishop Barclay and idealism or Pyrrho and Sextus and the skeptics. Those are these radical epistemologies, and I guess in Barclay's case, metaphysics, stimulants for a bunch of ink spilling. <laughs> and that's what Moore was up to in Proof of an External World. He starts out by quoting Kant, who wrote, It still remains a scandal to philosophy that the existence of things outside of us must be accepted merely on faith and that if anyone thinks good to doubt their existence, we are unable to counter his doubts by any satisfactory proof. Mm. Kant had his own version of attempting to provide that proof. Moore was not satisfied with Kant's version, and Moore wanted to provide his own. He wants to prove that there are existing things outside of us. And that's what proof of an external world is about. Moore is asking, what sort of proof, if any, can be given of the existence of things outside of us? The first more than half the paper is all just working out what the hell that is supposed to mean, things outside of us. He reformulates <laughs> it into defining a thing as whatever can be met with in space and wants to, us to understand it in that very wide sense Subsequently, people haven't spent much time working on that aspect of it. I think that we think it's relatively clear what we mean by external objects. So people mostly concentrate on his quote-unquote proof, his argument that is supposed to show that. And it's pretty famous. You might have even heard of it as a scientist. Oh boy. I can't wait. Moore thinks, if I can prove that there exists now both a shoe and a sock, I shall have proved there are things outside of us. It's an interesting example to use, <laughs> but go ahead. Yeah, he doesn't go any further with that. That's a throwaway, but... So here's his example. It seems to me that there is only one possible proof of the existence of things outside of us, which is a perfectly rigorous proof. I can prove now, for instance that two human hands exist. How? By holding up my two hands and saying, as I make a certain... <laughs> oh, you lost the audience already, More, They're laughing you off the stage. How? How can I prove this? By holding up my two hands and saying, as I make a certain gesture with the right hand, here is one hand, and adding, as I make a certain gesture with the left, and here is another and if by doing this I have proved, ipso facto, the existence of external things, you will all see that I can do it now in a number of other ways. There's no need to multiply examples. It is perhaps impossible to give a better or more rigorous proof of anything whatever. Okay, is he trying to say that that does it, or is he trying to say that's as good as we can do it? 
Because if it was interpreted that that does it, then yeah, I, there's some problems there because it, it's more surprising that somebody in a learned institution or whatever, like Cambridge or, you know, would be willing to go that low. But then it would be a great bit of comedy, of intellectual comedy at least, to be like, yeah, that's it, folks. Like, I can go around just pointing at things and that's as good as it gets. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing it's the former, not the latter, but... I, I, because of the memorableness of this paper that probably, I mean, you know, right. Right. I, I have the same incredulity about, wait, what? Are you serious? That's your argument? <laughs> so just to check, I went, I'm pretty sure it is. I, you know, I've encountered it in multiple venues. To check on this, I went to one of my favorite reference books entitled Just the Arguments by Michael Bruce and Stephen Barbone, which has, I think they collected about 100 famous arguments from philosophy, and then they, they're they the editors and they get an expert to, on more to come in and write about what his argument is. Their mm. version of the argument, cool. uh, I, I mean, the argument published in that book is... Premise one. Here is a hand, here is another. Premise two. If hands exist, then external objects exist... Conclusion. External objects exist by modus ponens from P1 and 2. So indeed, that is, apparently, the argument. So you seem to share with me the prima facie difficulty and resistance buying that argument. What is your problem with it? I guess it just seems to me like he's just totally accepting that his perception is totally accurate or whatever. And in addition to that, he's, he's using the medium of language in order to say that something is external. I think there's a lot of, you know, like internal referencing, right. With language. So it just seems to me like to be blunt, it, it seems like something like one of my kids would say, or, you know, something, you know, really simple, but I guess I, you know, philosophy is littered, with that, right? I think, therefore, mm-hmm. I am. You know, there's a lot of this kind of stuff in philosophy, right? Where they just are like, "Fuck it," <laughs> I'm just gonna say what I actually think, and and then that like makes it into the annals of history and philosophy or whatever. Yeah, and I don't know. Do you think that simplicity is a critique or a refutation? I don't know. That it doesn't bother me how apparently simplistic it is. And then you mentioned that he's doing it with language, but I think that he thinks he's doing almost the opposite. He's demonstrating. He's showing. You, you know, this isn't just about language. He's ostensibly right, right, right. Yeah. waving the hand, quote-unquote, in front of you as he does the language. Correct. That's true. Well, I guess the other thing then to me seems like he doesn't take the question very seriously. You know, at the time, maybe that was as good as it could get, you know, and that was good enough or whatever. I, uh, this is something that's maybe reared its head a few times in these discussions. I like simple models, but I'm skeptical that the simple model is, you know, the best way to go. Or that if things are complicated, complex, then I think it's likely a simple model 
it could be an approximation or it could just be way off, you know, and, and, and due to its simplicity because it doesn't have enough parameters and it doesn't, you know, we don't know at this point in time anyway, in 2018 or whatever, whether or not what we're even seeing, you know, is, I mean, it's, it's an integrated whole from lots of different areas of the brain. It's just, as far as we could tell, and it, it just seems, you know, Simple's okay, but on such a, I don't know, I, I, I almost would want to say instead of an argument, it's just an assumption. Here I find my, I sitting over here defending G.E. Moore, that's fun. I would say regarding the point he doesn't take it seriously, well, he wrote a 20-page paper about it, and, you know, he's a, he's a BFD, I'm a Cambridge professor, and I'm famous, and I'm a big fucking deal. And I chose to spend my time writing about it, and I go into great detail in paragraph after paragraph about every last word and every, you know. So I think that he's doing his best to take the problem seriously. Oh, see, I was thinking it was the other way. Would he, would, if he was not a big fucking deal, would he have spent the time on that subject then? Would he have tried to do something a little from my perspective, more serious or what have you, you know, go into some detail about something and try and work his way up to becoming a big fucking deal. So that once he is a BFG, <laughs> you know, he, uh, he then is like, well, I've made it now. It's my time to tackle the big yeah. problems. I don't know. And then here's, here's what I come up about with. him to two hands to comment on that, I suppose. But, and then your second point was, you know, is it an argument at all or just an assumption? I think this thing I just read, I would count it as an argument. I would question premise one that, you know, that that seems to be assuming a lot, but that doesn't mean it's not an argument to me. Yeah, I, I mean, in its structure and everything, you know, it certainly is an an argument in that way, but I would just think that... The whole point of the external world, I mean, it's just, I mean, who's asking for it other than other philosophers, I suppose, <laughs> as you mentioned. Everyone else just makes an assumption, including probably scientists. Especially scientists. There's an external world, and then I'm just going to go fuck with it or whatever. Yeah. So then I, it seems to me like that, you know, I don't know. I mean, they wrote the, what was it, the Project Blue Book for the UFOs or whatever. That's a huge book. You know, and the whole thing, you know, in the beginning, <clears throat> the guy who was kind of running the show or whatever, this happened to be like Carl Sagan's advisor. I don't remember his name, but he was just totally like these, this is fucking bullshit, you know, waste of money. And they wrote a lot of stuff in there, you know? So I don't know. I mean, it seems to me like you can write lots and lots and still not take the subject seriously. So I don't think that's a hmm. Besides, aren't these professors long-winded anyway? Isn't 22 pages short <laughs> for a philosophical paper? Let me tell you my biggest problem with it. <laughs> mm -hmm. I still think we need to have a whole meeting on this because I think this is a big one and I see it everywhere, but other people don't reference it enough. I don't see how this isn't a big, fat, question-begging fallacy. If the topic under dispute is itself the existence of external objects, and hands are in the category external objects. If that's what is 
at question if you make an argument whose premise begins this object is a hand boom like this is a hand that to me begs the question against the whatever the opponent is the idealist the mirological nihilist the skeptic yeah i guess that's kind of what i thought that i was you know you're saying it in your way and i guess i was saying it in my way when i was like you know it's kind of an assumption though in a way like it's already assumed these two external objects are external objects mm-hmm. therefore the external world exists it's like and it's an it almost seems like something you just so you you're kind of saying it's a tautology or i mean it, i guess i could see that as well like if the conclusion is external objects exist and premise one is here is two existent external objects yeah I mean, it just seems like we are already assuming that the thing is. That's why it seems to me like just based on the argument that he just thought it was almost it seems almost tongue in cheek to me. That's why I laughed heartily when you were like introducing the argument. We two agree so far that just when we look at this argument, we're like, what the fuck? Can't do that. And a lot of other people have felt that way and written about this over time. So then, with that established, I'm like, yeah, but remember what your job was, Harland. This guy you do respect, Wittgenstein, respects this paper and this person. So you got to keep pushing past this initial what-the-fuck phase and try to find what what the nugget is, if there is one. Try to be charitable. What, like, can we find something here? So, when I... Because lovers are going to hate. No, wait. Haters are going to (laughs) hate. But are lovers going to hate? That's the real question here. Well, it's this topic. You're going from G.E. Moore, who you're like, shut the fuck up. And then then Wittgenstein's like, that's great. And you're like, what? (laughs) Well, yeah. I mean, he doesn't say it's great, but he at least, you know, he thinks it's important and worth thinking about and writing about. Deal. So, all right, what is, when I try to figure out what's going on here, I think that it's, that that version of the argument that I read with the two premises is just missing a premise. Moore does write about it and talk about it, but it doesn't make it into many formulations of the argument. I think it comes down to looking more closely at a general examination at epistemic concepts in general. We got, you know, what is certainty, knowledge, rigor, proof, doubt, all these things. And I think a lot is contained in that little clause I read at the end. It is perhaps impossible to give a more rigorous proof of anything, whatever. If we back off from interpreting more as making a dogmatic existential claim, when he says, here is a hand, and instead treat him as saying, I am more certain, I whenever people say that, I want to say more confident. I have a thing about the word certain. And now that I mentioned that, I might as well talk about it. I think that we should use the word certain only, exclusively, as a psychological term which indicates a maximal degree of confidence. Sounds good to me. More is certain that there's a cat on the mat if... He is 100% convinced that there's a cat on the mat. 
I think that's what certain should mean. It should be an epistemic absolute, and it should apply only to descriptions of epistemic agents. And that what we should use here is the term confidence. So I guess I'm just going to do that. Anyway, so Moore thinks, Moore is more confident of the claim, this is a hand, than he is of any premise that is included in a skeptical argument against the existence of hands. So it doesn't have to be 100%. It just has to be greater than the skeptical arguments. And if he is legitimately, reasonably more confident in the hand premise than skeptical premises, then he thinks that that's enough to justify a defense of the external world. He thinks that at some point, we just have to reach these quote-unquote bedrock certainties. And for him, this is one of those. So if we stick into that argument, the premise, it is more likely that this is a hand than that any skeptical arguments are sound, then it's, a to me, a little bit more reasonable of an argument. Does this make sense? Yeah, I just, I guess... The only thing I got caught up on was that, you know, if he's more confident that this is a hand than it isn't a hand, then he's, I would say, likewise, then more confident in an external world rather than that there is an external world, but that that's proof of an external world. My opinion, just thinking about it when you said it, I was like, well, that means the whole proof thing also gets us in trouble, I feel like, right? I mean... If you're more confident in something rather than, you know, more certain or whatever, then you kind of, I think the word proof has got a poof, you know, and then <clears throat> uh, maybe it has, it's, it's, it's evidence is the word we want to just simply more confident in an external world. That's where I'm at. Mm-hmm. Does this help you entirely? Yes, it does. 100% confidence. 100%! Let's get there. I, I think that Moore does an argument closer to the lines that I'm recommending we switch to in the second paper, in the defense of common sense. So, get ready for a quote! <laughs> the method I am going to use for stating, bracket, what I want to state, on bracket, is this. I'm going to begin by enunciating a whole long list of propositions, which may seem at first sight such obvious truisms as not to be worth stating. They are, in fact, a set of propositions, every one of which, in my own opinion, I know with certainty to be true. I begin my list of truisms, every one of which I know with certainty to be true. There exists at present a living human body, which is my body. This body was born at a certain time in the past and has existed continuously ever since, either in contact with or not far from the surface of the earth. Also, many other things, having shape and size in three dimensions, from which it has been at various distances. Some other things in contact. Large numbers of living human bodies, each of which at some time have been born and continued to exist not far from the earth, many of these other bodies have also died, and the earth has existed 
for many years before I was born, etc., etc. I have, I think, no better argument than simply this, namely, that all the propositions just read are, in fact, true. He just fucking does it. <laughs> like, that... It's a very commonsensical defense of common sense. He just says a bunch of things that he finds likely and thinks that the rest of us will also find likely. Then he literally just calls them true. I think that's interesting. You know, it's just so interesting that this is a acceptable way to argue because to me it's so unacceptable. Who is this guy, G.E. Moore? What was his mental state? You know, like, ah, you know, I, honestly, I like, know. well, it's just, it, what did he do before these papers? You know, what, what are, what's his work like prior to this? Because he, he doesn't seem to me to be saying anything that anybody who's thoughtful couldn't kind of say as well. But even if they aren't a philosopher or whatever, what is it that he brings to the table with these papers on external world and common sense that other people at his, in his time couldn't also have just said? You know, what what's he doing? Maybe it's, I don't know. And I don't know more well because, and the reason is because these are the sorts of papers that have made it into my education. And when I read these papers... I decide, I don't need to know this guy. He's an idiot. But, so I'm ignorant about answers to your questions, about who this guy is, what else has he done, why do we care what he's saying. There may be very good reasons, I don't know. Additionally, there's the, well, somebody had to say it thing. Like, if these arguments are going to be made, at some point, someone had to codify the what other people consider to be the best version of these arguments you know and say, well yeah yeah it's obvious but somebody had to say it somebody had to write it down and he's the one that happened to bubble up above the surface and get into the anthologies so he's the one that's doing it he was the one with a platform to do it at the time mm -hmm. right? yeah i mean they did he also teach at Cambridge or whatever? Yes, and as I understand it, he was well-established, he was platformed before doing these things. I don't know what he did to get his platform, but, you know, this is the kind of stuff that if you're doing Philosophy 101 with the freshmen or the whatever, a bunch of them are going to have these attitudes and sympathize with these attitudes and be excited that a wig-wearing old white man, like a special, privileged, you know, whatever, like this guy. Oh, yeah, there's a there's a big, famous, smart guy who said these things. So I think that's part of it. We just need someone to play this role and to make these arguments that, some, that many people are going to want to make as chimps. Yeah, now I just want to go back and figure out the history here. Anyway, but we, well, too bad we're not doing that. <laughs> no, but it's like, did he give interviews? 
was there, you know what I mean? Like posthumously, you know, and is, you know, not posthumously, just later in his life. What did, you know how they do that sometimes? They're like, you know, when you wrote this paper, what were you thinking? You know, blah, blah, blah. And this was the kind of response you got, you know, what, how did that make you feel, you know, or whatever, you know, and I want to, I want to go find that, that those, those writings. And also just kind of want to see what, how did, you know, what was his trajectory? Maybe you're right that we should have split this out into two meetings, and maybe someday in the future we'll come back and do this as its own meeting. Yeah. But to press on, press with, on. What, with, with the plan for tonight. Well, so, apparently, though, Harland, we can just keep going until I fall asleep, so... We can. There's I hope no you're going to enjoy editing, editing this tomorrow. <laughs> the way that this one... The way that the argument in Defense of Common Sense is written in the Just the Arguments book mentioned nice. moments ago, is as follows. And I think this one is slightly more interesting. I have tons of problems with it as well, but... Premise one. <laughs> the skeptic's assumptions imply that propositions such as I know that this is a pencil are false. Premise two. If proposition A is more certain than Proposition B, then B can not falsify A. In other words, if we're more confident of A than B, then we can't use B to throw out A. And that is a huge thing, and that's what Moore is doing in here, I think I agree. Premise three. I know this is a pencil, is more certain than any skeptical premise. Conclusion. The skeptic is wrong. The skeptic's assumptions cannot falsify. I know this is a pencil. I think that's an interesting argument form. And there's much that can be said about it that we're not going to say. But that's... <laughs> at least yet. Like, let, we'll let shoulda, Wittgenstein coulda, come in first. All right. But, you know... Do you all feel about this one as well? Like, eh, I don't know about this. Uh, well, not problems. after all the fucking years we've spent chit-chatting and you're all like, I'm an enemy skeptic. And I'm like, okay, what's that? And then we go in and I'm like, ah, sounds good to me. What does what Tender Vittles have to say? The first sentence in Uncertainty runs as follows. If you do know that here is one hand, we'll grant you all the rest. So that's how he's just kicking it right off at the beginning. And I really like that. And I am willing to play by those rules too. Okay, Moore, you're made, you've made an argument. It's a valid argument. If your first premise, like if you can convince me to accept that, then I'll follow you down the rabbit hole and we'll have an external world and all this stuff. But the fact that Wittgenstein says that and has bothered to spend all this precious time thinking and writing about it indicates to me that he does not agree that Moore is allowed to say that he can have that premise here as a hand. That's just kind of his table setter. Now we've got our big question. And I should come up with something to say now. <laughs> oh my god, I was like, 
was that hangouts falling away or should or is it you taking an actual pause it's taking a pause because now we're like all right well that <laughs> classic all right so aside as though the whole first hour hasn't been an aside in my experience engaging with other literature, other human beings, talks, etc., Wittgenstein is just like Einstein. Everybody loves him, and everybody wants him to be on their team. So everybody is going to read Wittgenstein, select out certain parts that make him sound like he agrees with them, and they're going to quote it out of context in order to provide evidence that he's buddy-buddy with their position, right? Like, people do that with Einstein all the time, and they say things that are ambiguous or easy to misunderstand. The kind of trite example is the way Einstein used the word God at various times and places, and how certain Theists nowadays want to pull those out and say, oh, see, even Einstein thought that the, that the God hypothesis was possible. No, yeah, no. <laughs> they just recently auctioned off like his, a letter or something like that, that he wrote about how preposterous he thought the whole thing was, God and religion. There was, I don't know what the It's a was. fake. It was a lot. <laughs> Is it a fake? Elmir oh, wrote it. No, I don't know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I I thought maybe, like, new information had come to light. Yeah, anyway. So, I'm going to do that, too. <laughs> Except, I'm going to do... Since I'm telling you this up front, it makes me more trustworthy. Oh, you're so noble. I, too, think that Wittgenstein, in a sense, is on my team which I call the skeptic team. Oh. Even though he didn't self-identify that way, didn't write about, you know, he I don't think that he really called himself one or even like Nietzsche wrote about how well the skeptics are great. When you read all these later works that were unpublished notes in various levels of draft. This is one of my favorite things about Wittgenstein, and why I like him in the first place, I think. He's a thinker. When you read him, you can just hear and feel the what at least convinces me is entirely genuine wrestling with ideas. He really wants to figure things out, get the best arguments, not really take a position, but as best he can, consider everything. But that means that when one is reading it, it's very difficult to tell which remarks are his current position or in his voice versus are any of the other voices in his head that he's kind of going back and forth with. Like, I don't think Wittgenstein has an inner monologue. I think he has an inner parliament <laughs> and is just going back and forth between all these characters, and he's talking to all of them. Uh-huh. And then they'll talk about the biographers and the people who know him and stuff. Will 
describe how he would often lecture and he's kind of pacing back and forth and he's looking off into the distance and you can tell he's in his own head and he's having these thoughts and he's talking out loud and once in a while he'll kind of hit a snag and get stuck and he'll just kind of gesture to the classroom like somebody fucking say something i'm stuck give me something you know and then a, the least timid soul in the crowd may come up with something and say it and then he'd turn and intensely wait for like oh what do you got and then if he liked it, then he'd get all excited and he'd be back on and he'd pace again and he'd be like, yeah, yeah, that's it. And then he can move. But if he didn't like it, he would, you know, dismissively wave his hand and be like, shut up, you fucking moron or whatever. You know, like, I don't think he did that. But he was somewhat aggressive and dismissive. And so that many people were apparently a little intimidated and afraid. They didn't know if they should say their thing like, oh, is W going to like it or not? I don't know. But I also feel like that kind of person at least part of the time. And I like to hear that that's what he was like. He, one of the phrases that comes up again and again in uncertainty is the phrase, I should like to say, dash, <laughs> and then something, and then maybe in the next sentence he'll say, but that fails because of this, you know, or mm. so... And that's how my brain kind of works, too, at various times. Like, all right, well, I'm trying to work on this topic. Let me just quiet my, quote-unquote, conscious mind and let <laughs> come what may. And, like, what is the reaction? But then be able to view that as merely input from some subconscious module and not take it too seriously, but just take it as a hypothesis that we can work with, episode 17, <laughs> and then try to come up with some other ones. And Wittgenstein works that way. The point is, since he does that, it's easy for anyone who wants him to be on their team to be able to extract it, because he himself writes as... Many teams, many players. He's all over the place. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> cool. So don't trust me with this interpretation, but just download it and then go read with this in mind and see what you think and see if I'm just crazy and being biased because I want W to be on my team. So my point is going to be something like this. Wittgenstein wasn't himself as a unitary object if we had to characterize the man as one thing. Wittgenstein wasn't a skeptic, but he had a good skeptic module in his head. One of the voices in his head was playing the role of the skeptic, and he was never able to refute that voice. He didn't ultimately become convinced by it, like it, identify with it, and argue for it. But he wrestled with that voice in his head all the time, and he never defeated it. So in that sense, there was a skeptic in Wittgenstein, not that he necessarily was one. So as we go through some of these quotes and some of this stuff from Uncertainty, I'll try to show where I see the inner skeptic in Wittgenstein and how he wasn't able to overcome it necessarily. <laughs> okay. That was very poetic. Go.
I don't want to. What? It's <laughs> a hard job. <laughs> you piece of shit. Go. You can be wrong. <clears throat> Talk through it at least, for fuck's sakes. You're like, I prefer silence. But start with like an I should like to say, and then come on, let's go. Be Wittgenstein or whatever. So the book is called Uncertainty. So we should probably, to some extent, talk about certainty and what he thought that meant. We're going to contrast it with the word knowledge because that's probably the most common way people choose to English certainty with the phrase, I know, dot, dot, dot. That's kind of an expression of certainty. The difference between the concept of knowing and the concept of being certain isn't of any great importance at all, except where I know is meant to mean I can't be wrong. In a law court, for example, I am certain could replace I know at every place in the testimony. And that makes sense to me as someone married to a lawyer. I like all these law court examples. And I'm always talking to someone who knows about these law courts and stuff. Okay, and this is where we're going to go. We're going to continue referencing back to this meaning is use version of philosophy of language of latter Wittgenstein. He's often going to talk about the way, as a sort of lexicographer or scientist, he's going to be asking us, well, look at how people talk. One of the places that we care about language is in courts of law. In courts of law, any time that someone says, all right, well, uh, I saw O.J. Simpson fleeing the corner of Haight and Ashbury at this date or whatever, <laughs> I know I did. You know. <laughs> yeah. If the cross-examiner wanted, they could say, well, I mean, are you certain? And they would just say, yeah, whatever, it's the same thing. I already said I know, I'm certain, it's the same, you know. Yeah, I am certain, I know. That's the way we talk, according to Wittgenstein. Much of the time. But w linguistic practice is imprecise. Other times, when we token the phrase I know, it seems to indicate I cannot be wrong. And I think that that's how Wittgenstein thinks that Moore is using it when he says, I know that I have never been a great distance from the surface of the earth. Wittgenstein thinks that Moore thinks he can't be wrong about that. Like, and then he bounces back. Then he lets the skeptic talk. And his, the skeptic inside Wittgenstein's head is like, well, how do you know that? Maybe you have. You sleep sometimes, right? Well, maybe an alien transported you across the galaxy while you were asleep and returned you to your own bed, and you were not aware of it, but you traveled a long distance from the surface of the Earth. Any of these, what Ryan calls arguments from absurdity. I don't think I'm the only one who calls them that, but yeah, go ahead. <laughs> hey, I'm trying to let you have a meme. Please. Child, please. Anyway. So Wittgenstein will often make those moves. He'll be like, yeah, well, all right, you have good reason to believe you've never been far from the surface of the earth, but maybe you have. The skeptics will come up with some occult 
explanation or possibility, and I can't tell them that they're wrong. Like, well, yeah, maybe you have been. So then we move from there to a problematization of what it means to be wrong. And he's going to try to change the definition of that. All right, so one of the things that he'll talk about is, if I'm wrong about that, then I don't know what the dichotomy, what the analysis of right and wrong even means anymore. If I'm capable of being wrong about all the claims that Moore makes in a defense of common sense, I am a living human body that was born in the past and has existed continuously near the surface of the earth. I interact with other things, having a shape and size in three dimensions, etc. If the skeptic wants to come in and say, I don't know, I'm not certain about any of that, maybe you're wrong. One of Wittgenstein's attempts to answer the skeptic is to say, well, you're not playing the language game right. Because what is wrong even supposed to mean if I'm wrong about every element of common sense? Well, you, that's such a cliffhanger. I thought you make it sound like you're going to continue to talk. And I'm like, I have all these things to say, but then you keep talking. I'm like, all right, fine. And then you're like, then you cliffhang it. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. Okay. Well, What's I mean, the yeah, meaning of all this? No. Um, go ahead. You, you were going to continue. No, I'm just saying, yeah, if you've got some things kind of building up in the queue that you want to say, I think this is a good time to bring in some of them. Think back. Well, I, I don't know. The things that's, I mean, first off, just hearing it again, the common sense thing, it's just like, come on. I mean, sure, but why not, if you're going to do this big philosophy paper thing, why not just say, like, I assume these things are correct? And here are the reasons why I, I assume that. Like, it just, that drives me crazy. You know, uh, but then it, it's a different time and place and person and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, so it I might allow be that. An, an anachronistic type thing that by that we are in a venue in a time and place where it, it makes a lot of sense to just say, well, fucking stipulate it and work from the stipulation. Why do we have to care about establishing something as a certainty? And if you're right about that, or to the extent you're right about that, that's good news for me as the skeptic or whatever, because I like that. I mean, I'm fine with stipulations, but not knowledge. Um, yeah, I mean, just the whole if-then-else kind of thing seems to be... It allows people to judge things better. Otherwise, you're just fa faced with these, or these bald-faced premises or whatever they are you know this idea of his inner skeptic or whatever it is i don't know i'm just i'm i i, I find it interesting that um that there would be this large enterprise by the name of ludwig wittgenstein and that only part of that enterprise would be a skeptic or whatever so what was he otherwise then like, did he, was he on the hunt for certainty and all that kind of stuff? And that's why 
you know, he was, ah, was okay. willing yes. to entertain these two papers in particular. I can talk about that for a second. <laughs> this is one of the things that spanned across both periods of, you know, the two Wittgensteins from Tractatus and Philosophical Investigations. The end of philosophy or the bedrock or the what cannot be said, etc. One of the common memes that you will hear is that Wittgenstein thought that the job of, the only legitimate job of philosophers was to show the fly the way out of the fly bottle. That what philosophical problems were, most of them, is merely bewitchment by language. That philosophical problems that people obsess about and write about for 2,000 years are just mistakes. Uh They're linguistic oddities or they're paradoxes, unresolvable paradoxes, etc. And that what we need to do is dissolve them. We need to dissolve, we need to just forget about this. Learn how to stop doing that. He's a stop it guy. <laughs> uh, and this was his they talk about the analogy with philosophy as therapy or you know Wittgenstein as a therapist and just trying to show these <laughs> philosophers you guys are just mentally ill, you're sick, you need to be cured of your obsessions with traditional philosophical problems. Can I just cut in really quick? Hold yes. your thought. The whole stop it thing for the 8.1 or whatever listeners. There's a uh, um, a Bob Newhart uh, comedy sketch he does with Mo on Collins. Mad TV on Mad TV with Mo Collins, and she's going in for therapy, and it's very Bob Newhart. And uh, anyway. Every time she tells him his problems, he's like, he finally is like, are, are you done? And she's like, yep. And he's he's like, okay, are you ready for the therapy to begin or whatever? She's like, sure. And he just goes, stop it. You know, he just yells, stop it. And she's like, you know, and then she starts to elaborate and she starts to talk about other things. And she's like, yeah, well, you know, I love him. And she, he's like, stop it, you know, or whatever. And so it's a funny, you can oh, go to YouTube and find it. Yeah, yeah, it's genius. Anyway. Go see it on YouTube if you're unaware of this skit. Exactly. So continue on, sir. So I see Wittgenstein is kind of playing the Bob Newhart to the philosophers, and they come in, and they're like, yeah, but I don't know if this is really my hand. Like, maybe it's just an illusion, or maybe I'm, maybe everything is in the mind, and there are no physical objects. Stop it! You gotta just stop it! <laughs> Right. So whatever your question was set me off on that tangent that what 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 is Wittgenstein's position if he's not a skeptic? I think was basically the question. Yeah, more or less, you know, or what's the majority of it? It's kind of a commonsensical type thing. It's kind of a pragmatic in a certain angle, pragmatic thing. Uh it's kind of existential in a practical way. It's just Stop it. Like, no. All this skeptical stuff is just linguistic tricks, and we ought ignore it slash transcend it. Not refute it, just learn ways to ignore it. Or shunt it aside somehow. Huh. Interesting. Why? 
I don't know. I probably want to get postmodern and psychological about it and do some kind of analysis of, oh, yeah, well, Ludwig, why, why do you think you want to do that? You're saying there are arguments out there that you cannot refute directly, but you also don't want to buy their conclusions. So what you want to do is try to find an end around in a way that you're allowed to ignore those arguments even though you can't refute them. Why do you think you want to do that? Well, here's my... Well, I mean, um, when was this written in relation to the year he died in 1951? This was 49 through 51. So maybe every time he wipes his butt, he's got blood and he's just kind of up against his own personal existential storm. And it has a huge impact on his psychology and the way he thinks about philosophical problems. I don't know. You know, like he said he had prostate cancer. Maybe that's, you know, influencing the way he thinks. Maybe. It's a total speculation. Yeah. But just coming from a hypochondriac at times myself, and I'm sure lots of other people in the world, you know, you kind of, you know, it kind of gets, you know, it pulls focus sometimes. Um, and I, I don't know the kind of individual that this guy was. Um, the only person I sometimes wonder is potentially comparable to these, you know, wonderful individuals that we've talked about so far, a lot of them, Wittgenstein, Nietzsche. Um, and I don't know if this person is wonderful, but I think they kind of fit the bill so far because they're hard to understand and they can't even themselves explain what it is that they're doing. And and you're just sort of like, what the fuck? But yet people seem to be very gravitated towards their work. And yet they don't seem to hold um, positions that would be <clears throat> um, uh, in the mainstream, even though in some ways they're, they're, they, they are kind of successful, this person. And that would be that Nassim Nicholas Taleb. He seems to have this same kind of thing going on where everybody's like, you know, half of them disagree and half of other people who've actually read his stuff think it's great but they're like you know it's genius but i don't know what the fuck it means you know like it's that kind of like <laughs> you know what i mean like there's an element there and it's like well what's going on i mean is it a language thing meaning like are they you know <clears throat> if you read wittgenstein in german or whatever or austrian or whatever language his is his native would it make like would it change everything and be like oh or, you know what I'm saying? Like, it, or did he write all his notebooks in English and he translated it wrong? I don't know all the details, so. Um, yeah, he was writing in German or whatever. This particular, the one I'm looking at, was translated by someone named Dennis Paul, who I don't know, and Elizabeth Anscombe, who I do know as someone who was uh, very familiar with and a friend and student of Wittgenstein and highly respected and whatever. But uh -huh. yeah, he it was translated. Right, but still also, um, you have the old Vienna Circle, right? They were, they were at least Germanic, right? All right, well, let me just throw out 
a series of quotes that indicate <laughs> these are what I mean by that Wittgenstein has a skeptic in his head that he's arguing with. Cherry picker. Well, yeah, I'm going to cherry pick, but then I'm going to, and then Ice is going to show up and ask for the papers of the cherry picker and stuff. We'll get there. Oh, God. Explicit. Go. So, you know, all right, these are things that as a skeptic I really like. Uh, From number two, from its seeming to me or to everyone to be so, it doesn't follow that it is so. Number four, I know I have a brain. Can I doubt it? Grounds for doubt are lacking. Everything speaks in its favor and nothing against it. Nevertheless, it is imaginable that my skull should turn out empty when it's operated on. You see what I mean? Like that last sentence, that's this... Uh Uh-huh. That's... He's got a skeptic in his head. Like, he doesn't like that, but he realizes or admits, like, I can't prove it until somebody cracks my fucking skull open and looks. Maybe I don't have a brain in there. I'm frustrated that that voice is in my head telling me that, but it's in there, right? Number 22, it would surely be remarkable if we had to believe the reliable person who says, I can't be wrong, or who says, I'm not wrong. So that version to me, that's a little bit closer to being the ruling personality. That's not just a voice in his head. That's pretty close to being W himself, but he's still not super comfortable with it. But he's like, whatever, somebody tells me they, they're not wrong. Why, like, that itself is no reason to believe them. And again, all of these are in light of this more stuff that we just read, where he's just, like, saying shit and saying, this is the truth. And then Wittgenstein's right. like, well, it would sure be remarkable if I had to believe that. Number 30, one does not infer how things are from one's own certainty. Certainty is, as it were, a tone of voice in which one declares how things are, but one does not infer from tone of voice that one is justified. Certainty, he's, he's using certainty in the way that we use confidence, I think. Tone of voice? Oh, yeah, in the way we use as yeah, confidence. Yeah. Yeah. As, That's confidence. Yeah. It's an illusion or a delusion, one or the other, or both perhaps, but but one or the other. You're either trying to make people think that you're not a fraud or whatever, or you really don't think you're a fraud. You really think you're onto something. And uh, that's the confidence bit, you know. And I think, you know, the more cases you encounter, the, you know, the more you do the inequalities where you're like, well, case A, I am more confident than B. And so therefore B cannot hurt case A, you know, in this case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Number 13. It is not as though the proposition, it is so, could be inferred from someone else's utterance, I know it is so. From his utterance, I know, does not follow that he knows it. So one thing that I like and is important for the skeptic, and again, you know, episode four, sits, etc. I think that Wittgenstein is a correspondence theorist. I think that he is a, a, a JTB, justified true belief, is basically what no means. He thinks that if someone says I know and is correct to say that, then 
the object of their sentence is true. He says in number 12, I know, quote-unquote, seems to describe a state of affairs which guarantees what is known, guarantees it as a fact. So if somebody says they know and they're correct about that, then what they're saying is true. So I, you know, that's, I like that, that's good. I think he's a correspondence guy. Even if the most trustworthy of men assures me that he knows things are thus and so, this by itself cannot satisfy me that he does know, only that he believes he knows. That is why Moore's assurance that he knows does not interest us. The proposition, however, which Moore retails as examples of such known truths are indeed interesting. Not because anyone knows their truth, or believes he knows them, but because they have a similar role in our system of empirical judgments. That was 137, for all of you who are following along. In 403 he writes, To say of man, in Moore's sense, that he knows something, that what he says is therefore unconditionally the truth, seems wrong to me. It is truth only inasmuch as it is an unmoving foundation of his language game. I want to say, there it is, it's not on some points men know the truth with perfect certainty. No, perfect certainty is only a matter of their attitude. 407. For when Moore says, I know that's... Dot, 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 I want to reply, you don't know anything. And yet I would not <laughs> say to anyone who is speaking without philosophical intention, that is, I feel, parenthetical, rightly, that these two mean to say something different. If someone says he knows such and such, and this is part of his philosophy, then his philosophy is false if he has slipped up in that statement, being, I know such and such. So that was, you know, I'm throwing too much at it once. God damn this medium! Well, but hold on. I mean, it essentially is that certainty and knowing are... It's like the hope is that there's access to truth and the mutable world or whatever. But that really, it's just a lot of confidence. You're just very confident. Here's the thing. How we've produced knowing and certainty and whatnot doesn't seem to reflect how we behave. You know, it seems to be more wishful thinking than actual or whatever behavior because the way we behave we behave confidently right and we have what little bits we have that support that that expression of confidence but what those other things in the dictionary definitions of them would mean we don't we don't have access to i think you can boil it down better to the confidence thing then you can boil it down to the things in of themselves or whatever that they are trying to align themselves with. You know, that's kind of how I see it. I see it as people want to hide behind the tree and stand perfectly straight and say, see, I've identified the tree. I've identified it so well that I can hide behind it versus just standing straight <laughs> in the park amongst some trees, potentially. 
you know, which I think is what it is more going on is that I'm so confident that if I stand straight, you won't be able to tell me apart from the trees that are super straight as well. Whereas that's somehow also supposed to be communicated as I am but a tree. I could stand behind one. I could be one. It doesn't like I have access to all of that stuff. Going with that, Harland. I get triggered by your example about trees, and I don't know if you read some of this or not, but that's another one of the everyday examples that's used often in uncertainty and or some of the more articles that, you know, I know that that's a tree. Well, do you? Maybe it's, uh, maybe you're pointing at something young and it's actually a bush or something else and you're mistaken about it being a tree, etc. But so, all right, what is the point of what you're saying? You stand very still and straight in a park and you assert that I am a tree. And you're saying other people might not be able to tell the difference because they're looking at the characteristic of uprightness and both you and the tree exemplify it. What the? What are you talking about? What I'm trying to say is that the confidence is is the the measure or whatever or the expression of your belief or whatever in something. And when people say they know something, it seems to me that what they want you to think is that they are they are able to identify the things themselves or whatever. Um, that they have the tools upon which to be able to do that. And what it, to me, and ends up looking like, and this is, I guess, a terrible analogy or whatever, is just them confidently standing straight in a, you know, in a little grove of trees, thinking that they fooled you into thinking that they are, but also a tree because they know it so well. It's this confidence thing that they exude in their behavior. And so I guess it's a terrible example. And yeah, tiredness and beer are involved. <laughs> you can edit all of this out. But that's kind of where I was coming from. I just, it seems to me like there is, you know, nothing that they actually possess other than a nod to the definitions or the abstractions of what we mean these things to be, you know, knowing, certainty, whatever, versus what it is that we actually do, which is the behavior of expressing confidence. Uh, yeah, I think I just agree with that then, right? That Yes, and so yeah. it's the expression <laughs> of it that to me is what it comes down to. Like that's the sign that you're dealing with something that's confidence because – all you get is the expression of what people are saying. You don't get beyond that, you know. That's why I think it's kind of an assumption. Yeah, I assume based on all the things that we've put together about what a tree is and, you know, all the categories that we have for them, all the studies, the biological studies, all these things, the things you get when you're growing up as a kid and you climb that tree and all that kind of stuff, that is just we assume that there is something there for, you know, we interact with it or whatever. And we all point to it. And we all have this, you know, gathering of information 
and um you know communication amongst each other about it but in the end really it just comes down to if you were you know push comes to shove or whatever it just comes down to it's boiled down to confidence and in what contexts do we want to critique people's expressed evinced confidence and say well you shouldn't be that confident about that or not that's at least where i go i don't know about you if you ever want to do that make that move well i mean i would say that's fine to be confident in something because confidence goes as far as all the things that are fed into it um it could be your you know fucking limbic system but it could also be the network of interactions and and discussions that you have. It could be a you know go back to when you're a little toddler and your parents point and say tree. It could be all these kinds of things. But then it could also be you become a botanist and you study trees and forests and stuff and you're worried about climate change or whatever. And you just keep going and you learn about how you know there's vascular plants and non-vascular plants and just all these kind of different variations that we use to try and talk about what we're looking at and and somebody says hey i see the pattern as this and somebody goes yeah i think i can see that and then just keeps going and going textbooks are written and old departments are created and uh you know we use it to create pulp and write on with and make paper and you know there's so much going on you know and so uh the confidence is all fed in from that, you know, from our activities, our behavior and all that kind of stuff. I feel like somehow I have managed to be the more skeptical one and it's just bizarre. But the, the, the issue here is that I think all the whole issue here is that you just assume it and then you're good. And that's sort of, to me, maybe, um, I can take the whole stop it thing and work it in that way. Just be like, stop it. You know, just assume it is what it is and just keep going, you know, play with it, work with it. That's all we've been doing anyway up to this point. So come on, you know. Uh, Instead, you philosophers are like, no, it's not good enough. And it's like, Jesus, fuck. At least, you know, I guess somebody's got to say it's not good enough. Uh, I don't know if that's what Wittgenstein's meaning by when we say stop it from the Bob Newhart skit, but that's what I mean. Stop it. Just assume you have a left hand fucking G more, you know, instead of worrying about thinking that it's an actual premise. One way that Wittgenstein literally writes, stop it is in, uh, section 31 of uncertainty, the propositions, (laughs) which one comes back to again and again, as if bewitched, These I should like to expunge from the philosophical language. Do you hear that? That's the way he says, stop it! (laughs) Episode three, right? We talked about the game players and the truth seekers. And I think that's what I'm hearing you keep going back to in your version of Assumption. I think you see assumption as a game player activity. And you're like, well, why can't we all just be game players? Be satisfied (laughs) to say, okay, let's assume 
here is one hand and here is another. What what do we do now? What follows? Right. That's the game player attitude to the claim, here is one hand. I don't think that's Moore's attitude. I read Moore as a truth seeker. Uh He's defending common sense. He's not just playing the game. What if we were commonsensical philosophers? I think he wants to move from these premises to certain, in the sense of 100% confident, propositions and move, you know, and see where that goes. So that, in part, is why we developed that that language game of talking about characterizing philosophers, scientists, inquirers, thinkers as either, like, or somewhere along this continuum of game players to truth seekers. So where does Wittgenstein fall in this triumph and joy? Um, I'm going to think... So in the, to briefly review, because probably many of the... Anyone who listens to this won't have heard the other one. Who knows? We have this either triangle or diamond, depending on how you look at it, that you can plot on a Cartesian coordinate system or something that one of the axes is game players on the left and (laughs) overseers on the right. Overseers are kind of the paradigm case of your arch-philosopher position type thing. They're telling people, they're comparing different games, they're saying, well, if you play by those rules, here's what would happen. They're conditional, and they are normative, and they'll talk about what they think you should do if given this and that, well, you should do this, blah, blah, blah. And then to the an other axis... Historians. You know, oh. To an extent, historians, I think, are also sort of overseers to an extent. They don't blow the whistle as much, but they're sort of in that camp. Anyway, go. And the other axis is between truth seekers and engineers. Are you interested in making something that works, or are you interested in discovering the ultimate and eternal truth? And that if you plot that thing out as a diamond, you can take any individual, including yourself, and try to put a dot somewhere in there. Well, maybe I lean toward overseeing and engineering or maybe i lean toward truth seeking and what you know whatever so you put you can go anywhere in there so ryan's question is where do i think wittgenstein is in the diamond right and that's a difficult question i haven't thought about it before i'm guessing that he's more a game player than an overseer and more an engineer than a truth seaker Huh. Or, eh, like- but I don't know. I shouldn't even say because I want to take it all back as soon as I say it's. It, he's hard <laughs> to. He's hard to place. Is he slab dab in the middle? Perhaps. You should have asked me to prepare that if you want an answer to that question. That's too hard for me right now. Oh well, do you think that one's too hard? Where's Nietzsche falling? <laughs> Wrong episode. <clears throat> I should be asking this every episode. That could be a refrain we attempt to employ. Keep referring people back to that episode, see if we can get someone to listen to it. Yeah. 
Let's look again for a minute at this number 407. The text of which is, When Moore says, I know X, I want to say, you don't know anything. But yet I would not say that to anyone who is speaking without philosophical intention. These two mean something different. I think that Wittgenstein is highly contextual and that he's using this language games concept to say, well, it depends on what you mean by I know. And I know is used in an odd, particular way as a term of art by, quote-unquote, philosophers. So when I'm reading more... I'm well aware that when he says I know, he's using it in a very philosophical sense, and he's making these absolute claims, and he's doing metaphysics, and he's got all these... So that against the philosophers, Wittgenstein leans skeptical and says, I want to reply, you don't know anything. And that's, of course, dear to me. I'm like, yeah, that's what you should say. But Wittgenstein doesn't want to say that to the common man or the witness in the court case or what he doesn't want to bring. He thinks that would be inappropriate to say in court if the person says, well, I know what I saw. That's the bank robber. He's right there. That it wouldn't be a very successful court system if we allowed the opposing counsel to say, well, do you really know it? Well, I don't know if anyone knows anything. I'm a skeptic. Like He's like, no, no, no. You're playing the wrong language game. What's a language game? <laughs> language game is a concept, a term from philosophical investigations. It's very near the beginning, and his primary example of it is a world that has two human beings and a bunch of engineered objects. And what they're doing is architecting a structure, some shelter or something. The objects are uh, pillars and slabs. And then you've got an architect and an apprentice. And the architect is giving orders to the apprentice, such as, bring me a slab. Or, how many slabs remain? As I'm trying to work out my... Or, I need two slabs, then a pillar, whatever. So that you have this situation where there's a contextual dynamic that there's a prax that's the form of life part there's the what are we doing we're making a building and i'm the boss and you're the ha you're the gopher and then we've got the noises that we make to coordinate our activities so he's purposely making it kind of trivial cuz he wants it to just be a game the language game is the noises that these two individuals exchange in order to coordinate their behavior when hauling, slipping shit around and making a structure. 
Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Does he really think it's just like um, a game in the sense that people are just, you know, playing ping pong? Is that how he he thinks? It's just a focus and, okay, I hit the ball, you hit the ball, back and forth? Or is he, <clears throat> do you think he means game as in like, uh, you know, um, the more social level games that people play you know which is you know what i mean like it's more um there's more nuance there's more implicitness there's more you know what i'm saying like what does he mean then by game because games is you know it could be a very explicit thing and games can also be this sort of strange implicit kind of activity let me say two things about that, and then you can re-ask the question if it remains after these two things. I'm not sure if they directly address it. Two of the reasons that he uses the term game in this case. Number one, that there's a sort of rule-following aspect. That in order for these two individuals to successfully coordinate their noises and behaviors, they have to, in some sense and to some extent play by the same rules. If one person wants a relatively flat object and makes the noise slab now, but the other one interprets that noise to mean cylindrical long object and brings a pillar, then it won't work. Whatever. So that there's, in order for this game to be played, they have to play by the same rules. So that's part of it. And then another part is another of the Wittgenstein tropes that everybody who talks about him will always bring up. The family resemblance point. So uh, when Witt this is one thing that changed drastically between Wittgenstein 1 and 2, between Tractatus and Investigations. In the olden days, Wittgenstein thought that it was kind of one-to-one, -one. you have a name, you have an object in the world, and you have the denotation relation, name denotes object. Consider how that is possible with the category word game. Wittgenstein says, good luck coming up with an Aristotelian necessary and sufficient conditions style definition of game. That corresponds entirely with the Korzybskian extensional definition of game. Like, you can't make an Aristotelian definition of game that covers all of the things that human beings happen to call games. Why not? Because there isn't one. We use the word game in a way that Different things that we call games don't have an essence. They just have a vague sort of resemblance, kind of like members of a family. Well, you know, they got big noses and their eyes are far apart and dark hair and whatever, but some of them don't. That it's, this, that it's much more vague. I think those are two of the reasons that he calls things language games. There is no delineated set of necessary and sufficient conditions that you can use to call something a language.
or determine where one language starts and where one ends, or because they're always changing, evolving, altering, overlapping. Anyway, those are two points. It, do either of those or them together answer your question, or is there leftovers? I mean, there's stuff I would say. Do you want to continue on with that? Or okay, um, on the one hand, the it makes me think of a couple things. It makes me think of, um, I think David is his first name, but David P. Cars in that finite and infinite games thing. James uh, book. James, say it. thank you. James P. Cars and finite and infinite games. I don't know why I said David. Um. They're both biblical. And yeah. And uh you know, it's a uh kind of thing where language games would be kind of like a f- infinite games. But any other kind of games where you're playing cards or you're playing football or whatever would be more like the finite thing. And so the the only thing that seems like it's tweaked is they all have rules but that in finite games there's a winner or a loser, and in infinite games there isn't. So language games, it, it, it keeps going. And so the second thing I wanted to insert there was this idea that, you know, one of the things that I think you like a lot is the idea of just sort of setting out some kind of protocol or whatever, a hypothesis, a statement, and then testing that. And then if it doesn't fly then you can make an adjustment and work from there and continue on or whatever. Whereas um, the language games thing seems like it's kind of provisional. Like you you could say, hand me that slab, and somebody could say, you know, in a joking way, something else. I don't know what it would be. But maybe the person who said, hand me that slab, they like that. And then they keep kind of, it is you know, whatever it is that we're pointing to and calling the thing or whatever, it starts to evolve, the name, the nomenclature or whatever. So it seems quite provisional. But that there's like this family resemblance thing that, you know, I don't know. I, 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 I'm not quite there yet. Like, I don't see the significance of that. I could see where you do have more or less necessary, sufficient, whatever shit kind of can, you know, definitions where essentially the criteria at least are rules and then whether or not there's a winner. And that would be games. You could, and those two kind of games could be finite and infinite. And infinite is very much provisional and it changes. And the idea, the point is to continue the play. And, you know, the finite one would be to win. Both the philosophical language game and the common sense man on the street language game are both infinite, I think. Yeah, I would say so. So, yes, that dichotomy can be emphasized, but in the language game sense, we're contrasting different infinite games. Yes, they're both infinite, but they're still distinct in various ways. Sure. Wittgenstein writes, I'm sitting with a philosopher in the garden. He says again and again, I know that that's a tree. While pointing to a tree that is near us. 
Someone else arrives and hears this. And I tell him, This fellow isn't insane. We are only doing philosophy. <laughs> and I think that's a great joke. Oh, I was hoping that you were going to be like, that. that is not a tree. That's Bob pretending to be a tree. And my whole analogy thing would have come true. Oh, well. Um, I didn't get the joke, but that's okay. It sounds like philosophers only. Um, well, I'm, I'm just, uh, it maybe doesn't count as a joke. It makes me laugh. Just imagine the situation. You have two individuals seated somewhere, and one of them keeps emphatically insisting. No, uh, no, look, and he gestures toward it. He's like, no, that's a tree. I know that's a tree. But then... Not like insane. the UPS driver or something is walking up and they see one person yelling at the other one, red in the face and spilling their drink. That's a fucking tree, you bastard. <laughs> then, you know, the calm person tells the interloper, no, what? don't worry about him. He's fine. He's not crazy. We're just talking about philosophy. Because in yeah, no okay. other context... Would anyone get red in the face and scream, I know that that's a tree. That takes philosophy <laughs> yeah. in order to make that happen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I stand by what I said earlier. <laughs> you f- son of a bitch. Uh, you're the son of a bitch with your fucking philosophy. You don't get it. Jesus Christ. You don't understand me, Dad. Oh, God. <laughs> totally. You don't understand me, Dad. I'm like, you're wasting your life. Your mom and I are tired of this shit. Anyway. <clears throat> Just to put this on the recording, because my initial claim <laughs> was like that Wittgenstein has the skeptic in his head and he can't deal with it, but he wants to deal with it. Um... Check out number 470. He says, Why is there no doubt that I am called L.W.? It does not seem at all like something that one could establish at once beyond doubt. One would not think that it is one of the indubitable truths. So, and this is another refrain that comes up often in the work as a skeptical example. He's like, If I know anything, I know my own fucking name, skeptics. But then, you know, the skeptic inside his head is like, well, why don't you doubt that? Maybe you're not, maybe you're not Wittgenstein, you don't know. And anyway, the passage directly following that is, in brackets, here there is still a big gap in my thinking, and I doubt whether it will be filled now. And I may be misreading the whole thing, but to my interpretation, that just indicates this tension inside the guy between the skeptical voice in his head and the uh, the ruling personality, or whatever we're supposed to call it, that doesn't want to be a skeptic. He'll say, I know what my name is! Fuck you! And then the skeptical voice will be like, yeah, well, I don't know, why don't you doubt that? I think you should doubt that. Why aren't you doubting it? And the ruling personality is like, Fuck, I don't know. There's a big gap right here. I know I don't like it. I don't know why. And he never resolved that until the end. Wait, he never resolved that period? It was, you know, or he resolved it in the end. I don't know which. (laughs) I, I mean, I don't know. I, again, am not a scholar. 
Maybe he maybe somewhere else in some other Wittgensteinian text, one could argue that he does resolve it. Okay, so he as far as I know, okay. he has he never resolved that tension between okay. the the skeptic in his head when, and what he wanted to be. When you said until the end, I was like, okay, are we at the end? Oh, Where I see. Yeah. It? Anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah. We're playing the same language game. He writes, when one hears more say, I know, in italics, that that's a tree, one suddenly understands those who thinks that that has by no means been settled. So, Wittgenstein's, when Wittgenstein reads more, he suddenly becomes sympathetic with the skeptics. Because he's like, here we have this guy who, for some reason, is writing a big long paper and teaching at Cambridge and saying things like, I know that I'm a human being who was born. And that's just a weird... He's. I think he's kind of like you, right? Like, you're like, what the fuck are you... Why do you write that down? What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. yeah, basically. And Wittgenstein's like, when I hear Moore do that, all of a sudden, I become sympathetic to the skeptics, who are like, that is not at all settled. Because he's saying that's not part of our language game. That's not something that should be done. Because how well, I'm confused yeah. about the name thing. I'm confused about the name thing. Like, <clears throat> I know I'm Ludwig Wittgenstein or whatever. Um, there's no other Ludwig Wittgensteins. Like, come on. You know, even uh, Albert Brooks changed his name from Albert Einstein to Albert Brooks. Like. Come on now. There's lots of people. There are p other people named Ryan McKenna. Probably other people named Harlan Grant. Or other things. You know, like, why isn't that entering into the fray? Like, I know I am this name. Like, well, what? this other person's also that name. Maybe. The phrase was, you know? why is there no doubt that I am called Ludwig Wittgenstein? So it's not that there's some kind of you know, essential, like, I am this or whatever. It's just that that is how I am called. That's the noise other people make when they want to talk about me, whatever. Does that deal with what you're saying or not? Yeah, I mean, that that's a good, you know, that, that that's, you know, obviously. That's better. It's better. So the way, the best... My interpretation of his best answer to this skeptical voice in Uncertainty is a running theme about, and this is a Morian move, that Wittgenstein is saying, as he does in number two, right at the beginning, from its seeming to me or to everyone to be so, it doesn't follow that it is so, what we can ask is whether it can make sense to doubt it. His attempted response to the skeptic is to attempt to undermine their doubts through this common language attitude, I think. He's saying okay, well, that's not how the word doubt is used by most people most of the time in daily life, and that's how words get meaning. So when a skeptic comes in and says, I doubt that that's your hand. 
Wittgenstein is saying, you're talking nonsense now. Why, why is it that somehow his own stuff doesn't come into play? Like, why doesn't the language games thing that come into play? Like, that's, I doubt that's your hand, because over here we call it a foot. You know, I know, I, you know, people call, I am called Ludwig Wittgenstein, but this guy, some people call Ryan McKenna, is calling you tender vittles. I, I'm trying to say, like, there's various contexts upon which, why, why doesn't his own philosophy about language fall into that particular thing where in a different context that isn't the case and then there you have uh your way out and you know well in this scenario you aren't called ludwig wittgenstein or something like that so you could say then i know i'm called ludwig wittgenstein in this context maybe and then you'd have to say well how do you know you're called in that context well how do you know you're in that context or something like that. That seems to me like the way, why doesn't that find its way into his thinking? I mean, maybe because you would say it's stupid or something. I don't know. But that's what comes to my mind. One thing that he writes is, a doubt about existence only works in a language game. So to talk about the skeptic and what they're claiming, his attempt to undermine them is similar to, like Moore's version was, I'm more certain of commonsensical claims than I am of any skeptical claims. Wittgenstein's version is, skeptical claims cannot be meaningfully formulated because that, because in order for words and sentences to have a meaning, they have to be employed that way in common usage, and common people are not skeptics. That's not how the word doubt works. Skeptics are merely in this, they are bewitched by language, and he wants to expunge that. Your question seemed to be kind of a meta one, right? I don't know if this is what you're saying. Wittgenstein, your point is, meaning is use. Well, what if we apply your own theory to itself. If you're saying meaning is you, well, all right, well, let's go look at how human beings use the word meaning. And when they do that, do they mean use? No. Isn't that a problem for you? Is that what you're saying? I don't think that's what I was saying. What I was trying to say, uh, successfully or unsuccessfully, was if he knows he's called Ludwig Wittgenstein, the additional information is in some particular language game, right? In some particular context, he's called Ludwig Wittgenstein. He might be called something else in a different context. And so he could say, okay, well, I know I'm called Ludwig Wittgenstein in whatever, this context whatever the context is, whatever that language game is. And from there, he could say, you know, a skeptic could say, but do you know you are in that game? 
right now. How do you know? And then he would have to have a reply, like, well, because of something or other, maybe. And then I, I just think that it's that's what I was thinking when you were saying he thought that was the way out of the skeptic dilemma. I just thought, well, isn't it always in some context? He's already presented some ideas about what's going on. Why can't that be literally applied to his dilemma? Let's see if this is, has any relevance. You have these long pauses, and then you need to like come up with a quote. What do you think? No quotes. Okay, no quotes. What's a qu- direct question? Shortly, briefly. What is it? No, I mean, just what do you think about that? Like, why isn't he applying that? Like, do you think that's a possibility for him when he says, I know I'm called Ludwig Wittgenstein and I never answered that question or I never found a way out? I'm saying, why isn't the way out his own ideas about language games and the context that they provide and that in some context he's called Ludwig Wittgenstein? Does he know he's in that context? That would be the skeptic saying, how do you know you're in that context? To be called Ludwig Wittgenstein. How do you know? You're in... Do you, are you getting this or no? I am not. What's going on? I don't get what the okay. question is. I agree with you that that is one thing that a skeptic could retort. Like, if you are confident, if you know, if you are certain that you are called Ludwig Wittgenstein... When you are called that, you are called an inside of a language game. Okay, so now you've raised your confidence because, oh, yeah, all right. But then the skeptic comes back with, well, how do you know what language game you're in? Maybe you would be called that were you in language game X, but how do you know you're in that language game? Right. So so I don't know what the question is, though, then. Given that, what do you think of it? And what do you think of that in the context of him not being able to answer it? Like, why didn't he use that himself? I mean, it's not answerable, I suppose, but I'm just presenting it to you. You made it sound like it was this big, like, oh, no, and that no one has any good answers for that. And so I was just, when you said that, it made, triggered all these cascades. And I was like, well, why not? He's got this whole thing where you could have these various language games. And in one, he's called Ludwig Wittgenstein, but how does he know he's in that? If the... Question right. is directed. I don't understand the significance <laughs> of that last part. Then, if my thing is not happening, you know what I mean. Like I. Well, no, I'm mean, saying if care, the question I'm, is directed sort of like, at well, me, so what? And you're saying don't give me a Wittgenstein quote, but Harland answer it. I don't have an answer. I like that as a skeptical retort. I think that's a good way place for the skeptic to go, and I'm not sure that it can be well answered. Because my opinion would be, no one ever has a right to claim to know what language game they're playing. They might have pragmatic reasons to suspect they are playing a certain language game, but one never knows, and maybe you thought you were playing a language game and you were mistaken. And that sounds like what a bunch of Jonathan Swift books are about, right? Like... I don't know, like, I thought I knew where I was, but I didn't, and all of a sudden weird shit started happening to me, and I don't know the rules anymore, and now I'm tied down by a bunch of midgets, and they're, I mean, whoops, I don't know, I thought I knew, but I don't. To me, that seems always possible. Assume, though, that Wittgenstein would be able to do better than me and attempt to answer it. One thing that seems relevant 
is, and we'll check, because I'm going to quote now, because I tried to do what you wanted me to do. All testing, all confirmation and disconfirmation of a hypothesis takes place already within a system. This system is not a more or less arbitrary and doubtful point of departure for all our arguments, no. It belongs to the essence of what we call argument. The system is not so much the point of departure as the element in which arguments have their life. Do you think that's a sort of Wittgensteinian response? If we're talking, if the hypothesis is, I am in language game X, the language game where I am called Ludwig Wittgenstein, if we want to question that, if the skeptic comes in and says, but are you really? Maybe you're in language game Y. Now we've got these conflicting hypotheses. And Wittgenstein says, testing of hypothesis, you're already inside of a system. So I think he's just, again, trying to deny the skeptic their move. They want to question, well, what system are you even in? And he's like, well, you can't ask that sort of question because all of those questions and all arguments about what the right answer is has to be systemically embedded in the first place. And then this is a part that I would be putting on top of it. I think he privileges the everyday common sense system. And then he'd just be saying, but all of us are always already in the system of our birth and development. We're in Germany 1949, or we're in America 2018. And so that has to be the ground that we use. I don't know about that last part. I, that didn't trigger anything for me. But the whole point of the skeptic is, to me, playing the part of the null hypothesis that we talked about last time. And so, if you remember, it is kind of like Boolean logic or whatever, A, not A. So the the question the skeptic is posing, in my thinking, is not to say, ha-ha, you will never, ever, ever. It is to say, well, you know, get more specific. Come up with a way to, you know, uh, test whether or not, you know, you are being called you know, Ludwig Wittgenstein, rather than just saying that and saying, well, I guess I sympathize with G.E. Moore, and of course I haven't read these texts, but from everything that it sounds like, I'm just saying, well, get a little bit more specific. So then it's like, okay, are using his own ideas against that, it seems to me it's saying, okay, well, you know, maybe in this context or this language game, you were called Ludwig Wittgenstein, how do you know you're in it? It isn't to say, you will never be me, Ludwig, it is just to say, I want more from this statement. You, you sympathizing with G.E. Moore have not done it for me. You need to do more than more. <laughs> um, and that is, you know, the, all the skeptics seem to provide is just, to me, a null. It is not what you thought it was. I wonder if his response to that framing would include what has come to be called his hinge epistemology. And I don't have the quote up right now for uh, 
the way he precisely phrases the hinge thing. But the concept is, you know, you got your door and then you got your hinges. And in order for the door to open and close, it has to have something fixed, the hinge, upon which the door itself turns. So Wittgenstein goes back again and again to that sort of concept. All right, skeptic, you can try to ask me these difficult questions about how do I even know what game I'm in or whatever. But Wittgenstein is trying to cut the ground out from underneath those people by saying, you can't even ask that question. In order to ask it, you have to be asking it in a language, and any language that you speak is not based on, doesn't support a skeptical semantics. And so you can't do it at all. He writes, If you tried to doubt everything, you would not get so far as doubting anything. The game of doubting itself presupposes certainty. And I highlight that one and find it fascinating. I don't know exactly what he means by that. I think I disagree with it. I think it comes from the hinge concept. Like, all right, if you're going to doubt, like that's part of the door... And it, but in order to even formulate a doubt, you have to do it in some language that already presupposes certainty. He doesn't make explicit arguments. He often makes analogies, such as this one. If a blind man were to ask me, Have you got two hands? I should not make sure by looking. If I were to have any doubt of it, then I don't know why I should trust my eyes. For why shouldn't I test my eyes by looking to whether I can verify that I have two hands? What is to be tested by what? Who decides what stands fast? You know, who, des who decides what the hinge is? And I don't know. That's one of those things that makes me want to pace around and think for a while. Moore says, here's one hand, here's another. The skeptic tries to undermine that somehow, tries to doubt it. Oh yeah, are those really two hands? And then Wittgenstein's response to the skeptic is, all right, if you ask me to verify that I have two hands, how the fuck do I even prove that? Well, one thing I could do is look at them or show them to you, as Moore tries to do. But if we're playing the skeptical game, then why do we believe even that? Why do we believe the eyes? Now we've got to be skeptical about that and test whether your eyes work. Well, how do you test whether eyes work? You look at things that you know are there, such as hands. And so that Wittgenstein's picture is a sort of, I think, attempt at a reductio ad, ad absurdum of skepticism by saying, look, guys, We've got to have something in order to operate at all. We all do operate in the world. We do stuff. Like, just look, this is common sense. Everybody walks around acting as though they have two hands. So what does it even mean for you to come in and say, I don't believe that. I doubt whether you have hands. You're talking nonsense and you need to stop it. I don't know if any of this makes sense. I think you're probably just getting more and more frustrated.
Well, I think I've the only little bit of potential clarity that I've gained is that I think that's just the difference between, you know, somebody who has a, you know, formal and personal education in philosophy and somebody who's got a, you know, the same kind of thing, but it's more of the sciences or whatever. Um, I guess there's a bunch of people in philosophy running around just fucking unquenchable in their skepticism that they just want to keep going and going and going. And I suppose that's who uh, Wittgenstein is addressing. But I guess to me, the more, I guess I was just taking the more scientific route. And I kind of feel like it's overkill all of this other stuff, but I guess that's the metaphor. I think, right? yeah, what's happening with this topic and maybe a lot of the things that I try to talk about, you don't get it because you're already outside of it and you're already in a position that I'm fine with. And you're just like, wait, people actually don't think this way? And you're just like, confused? It's like that... <laughs> quote I read earlier about that had something to do with as soon as I hear more intone the phrase I know that that's a tree all of a sudden I have sympathy with the skeptics I think you're kind of like that position right you're thinking well I already didn't claim that was a tree and I didn't know that anyone really gave a shit but if this guy is going to walk in and start making a big deal about it I guess if I had to pick a side, I would pick the skeptic side. But it would be better to not even engage in this discourse in the first place. Let's just say, well, I assume that's a tree, and if it's a tree, I can get shade under it, or what? You know, I can do some kind of scientific investigation. How old is it? Well, I'll cut it down and count the rings. But I don't even think about whether or not it, quote unquote, is a tree. Or that I know it's a treat. You don't give a... You don't care. Yeah, and I was just thinking, at the very least, you just break it down into smaller pieces so that you can manage it a little bit easier rather than have this ongoing, long-running internal dialogue with your internal parliament. Uh, and just try and, you know, see if there's a way to even just answer the skeptical question about it, you know? And that's what I thought a lot of these people, like R.A. Fisher and, you know, uh, Pearson and all these statisticians were attempting to do for science, was give them some techniques that allowed them to take these kinds of philosophical conundrums in bite-sized pieces. And then, you know, we've kind of moved on a little bit from that to an extent, but in any case, it is still a methodology upon which you can say, all right, well, it is or it isn't, you know, and you have to then at least be uh, charged with the task of saying what the hell is, is going to be in your framework or whatever. And then if it isn't, then it just isn't, you know, and you move on from there and you try and maybe improve or whatever. Yeah, that's kind of the, that's all I was thinking. Um, so that when you made the statement that I know I'm, you know, that Ludwig, Ludwig, or you quoted Ludwig Wittgenstein as saying, I know I'm called Ludwig Wittgenstein. 
I think the skeptic would be like, okay, well, given this framework you've provided about language games, et cetera, let's apply that to your own words. And then we can start to ask questions like, well, are you like in what context and what language game? And then from there, you can start to t maybe do tests or whatever. But instead, like philosophers want to play a completely yeah. different game than scientists do, apparently. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. And you're like, well, Ludwig would say this. And I'm like, I don't care anymore. I just let's do the test. But isn't that a common theme between at least the two of us? And to the extent that we uh, yeah. stand in as six scarecrows for quote unquote philosophy and science. Uh the difference a difference between philosophy and <laughs> science. That the scientists don't think about or care about many of the problems that philosophers appear to care about. For example, you guys don't think, I think other than the sciences who actively study language, you don't think about language very much. And philosophers, at least in 2018, oh. think about it a lot. The past, you know, uh, one and nearly a quarter or more years, you know, centuries, I mean. Yeah. Uh, language seems to be a very important thing to philosophers. So much so that you guys think that it's almost... No. Thing. Well, they shouldn't. And that may be well, this they they seem to be very en enamored with it. And no, it's kind all right. of gross. Here's the here's the bumper <laughs> sticker. Language gross. is Weird the sine qua non of intellectual activity. Without which not, if not language then no science, no philosophy, no skyscrapers, no cell phones, no nothing. You don't think you don't think chimpanzees or something couldn't still build stuff? Not very build, interesting it, it, or no. sophisticated. A science? All right, well at least you'd be willing to admit <laughs> that yeah i mean language is clearly huge i'm not saying it isn't um but i i guess you know what it comes down to is it's like it's the philosopher's theory of everything or something you know it's like uh language that's the theory of everything um and i don't know i guess the Again, the skeptical in, is, individual in me is like, oh, is it? <laughs> you know, and then we want it. We're back at square one again, <laughs> which is a fine place to be, in my opinion. I think it's healthy. But then I want to ask, okay, you know, let's let's test this. But I don't know how to test it because I'm tired. But still, um, that's kind of like, yeah, when you say those kinds of things, I'm like, <laughs> Cackles. Or cackles. Well, you, you cackle too sometimes. What do you want to say? What do you want to put on the cassette before we eject it? Excellent. Well, you know, it's it's a there there are yeah I don't know there are many there are many individuals 
in philosophy, uh, let's admit it, they're primarily white men. Some oh, yeah, gay, Wittgenstein was straight. gay, right? I don't know. Anyways, I think he was. Guessing. He believed he was gay, right, or he believed in gay rights? Yeah, I mean, but these individuals, they are, you know, I think, from all the discussions we've had and some of the readings that I have done, um, you know, very impressive individuals, but there's always in philosophy, at least these philosophical individuals, it's, it's never, and it seems like it never will be. It seems like it never is a closed loop. Like these people, it's Wittgenstein, uh, Nietzsche, you know, um, they, they just seem to me maybe as well, uh, as someone like, um, Hume, they seem to just continue the conversation, and it, it just sort of is like a Pandora's box of philosophy. Um, and, you know, Wittgenstein, to me, just he's an exemplar of that. Like, people just keep talking. Here we are, 2018 podcast. He doesn't even know what the <laughs> fuck that would be. Crazy technology. We're talking about him. You know, like it's it's just amazing to me. That's one of the things I wanted to say. Nietzsche, you know, all these other people that we've um, Your talked about. Deference procedure is inappropriate. <laughs> oh, <geez. sighs> well, Moleskew. What do you want to say? Here's Let's a collect. hand. This <laughs> is a hand. If I know nothing else, it's that. This is a hand. Single 